Luke Skywalker meditating on his rocky island retreat. Dragons soaring over the Westeros coast. John Wayne and Maureen O'Hara falling in love against a background of technicolour green fields. One place that links these unforgettable images? The island of Ireland. Maybe it's the drama of the landscapes or the heart and soul of the music that attracts location scouts. When soaring sea cliffs lashed by wind and rain were required for Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, there was no more fitting location than the Cliffs of Moher, a highlight of the wild Atlantic way. Meanwhile, anyone who's seen those jagged fingers of rock erupting from the ocean will understand why Lucasfilm decided Skellig Michael was the perfect place for a Jedi Knight to take refuge. So if you're a film fan, the island of Ireland is ready when you are. It's time to book now. Visit Ireland.com and press the green button to start your Irish adventure. Hello and welcome to a special festival edition of the Irish Film London podcast. My name is Jerry Maguire and I'm here to fill you in on everything we've been up to over the last few weeks. So today is... Today's Thursday the 18th of November and the festival opened last night on Wednesday the 17th and it runs until Sunday. So our intention is to try and provide you with these sort of daily festival dispatches but well, we'll see how we go. We'll see how we go. It's not like we're not busy enough already. Um, <laughs> and what's more there's no, uh, it's just Jerry on my own here. I've no Nave with me. She's away acting because um, <laughs> she's an actress, of course. Um, and uh, <clears throat> she happened to land a big acting job during the festival, and far be it from me to, to deny her that pleasure. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure how I feel about that. Is the IFL podcast even a thing without Neve Brannigan's voice on it? <laughs> Let's find out. Let's find out. So I've known Eve, um, but what, what we have done for these podcasts... Um, is we've deputised another Irish actress um, who who I think is going to be really exciting to, to hear from. Um, her name's Quiva O'Malley. She's a brilliant actress. Um, you'll, I don't know if you'll recognise her voice, but you'd recognise her face. You can, you can look her up. Um, and uh, and Quiva's going to record a few festival interviews for us. I'm going to try my best to do a bit of ad hoc festival reporting and fill you all in um but we're kind of doing this on the hoof so your normal your normal top-notch audio production is not really possible in these in these circumstances so please forgive any any hissy uh any you know subpar audio quality from these things and the other the other thing is I'll tell you, I'll sort of expand on this a little bit, but we thought that we would do a few like mini episodes during the festival. We might still end up doing some mini episodes of of the podcast just to keep people up to speed. But last night was the opening night of the festival, and our opening night film was um, the brilliant Act by Tom Sullivan. And in preparation for that, Quiva got a hold of Donal O'Healy, the lead actor from the film. And did a little interview with him. And then last night on stage at the Riverside Studios to a sold out audience. I'm still in awe of this, by the way. 
I did a Q&A with Tom Sullivan. And I've just recorded it on my phone, like, um, so, yeah, you, you, you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll, you'll hear what you can hear, I suppose. You'll hear my chair creaking as I sh- nervously shift around in it, and you'll hear all sorts of things from, from me and Tom's microphones and, and everything else, but, like, yeah, let's see how we go, let's see how we go. Um, but suffice to say, between the, the interview with Donal and my Q&A with Tom, which I think went on for over half an hour, actually, um, we've actually got a fairly decent podcast episode to bring you. Like, it's probably more than an hour's worth of content. So if you can't make the festival, or if you made it last night and you want to relive it, which of course you would, um, then then we've got we've got tons of audio content for you. And I'm recording this here in my flat on Thursday morning in the hope that I can get it out before I have to zoom off to Hammersmith again and start to do some of our industry events. So so here we go. Without further ado, I leave you with Quiva O'Malley's interview with Don O'Healy, which was recorded earlier this week. And then I'll drop you straight into my Q&A with Tom Sullivan, uh, recorded at the Riverside Studios last night. Uh, Irish Film Festival London is on right now. Uh, please, if you are listening to this uh, in a timely fashion, consider coming down. We'd love to see you. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Let us know what you think of our festival events. Um, please do consider supporting Irish Film London as an organisation. We're a not-for-profit community organisation which really needs the support of listeners and members and anyone who feels like what we do is important enough to, to give us a shout-out or to become a, a festival member. You can become a festival friend or if you're feeling flush, you, become, you can become a festival champion. But even if you can't do any of that, just let people know that we're here. If you're enjoying the podcast, give it a like, subscribe, do all the normal, usual social media things. We really appreciate it. It makes a huge difference to what we do as a small organisation. And uh, yeah, with any luck, you'll hear from me again later this week. So here's Donal O'Healy, followed by Tom Sullivan, in regards to the film Arak, which opened the Irish Film Festival London 2021 at Riverside Studios last night. So, Donal, thank you so much for joining me and huge congratulations on Iraq. It is such an incredibly beautiful film and so heartbreaking and you give such a moving performance in the lead role as Coleman Sharkey. Um, so Iraq has gotten so much praise and attention since it premiered back in 2019. Um, and I guess a lot's happened for you and for the world in the space of two years. So does it feel like a lifetime ago when you made the film? Yeah, I, well, first off, Cleve, thanks a million for your kind words. And it's great to, to be chatting with you. And uh, yeah, I guess it does feel like a life. Well, I don't know about a lifetime ago, but a long time ago. Um, uh, we I think we wrapped on something like the 20th of October 2018. So it's been almost three years to the to the date. Uh, so a long time coming, but uh, all of us. Tom, Kate, the whole team are thrilled that it's finally kind of making its way out to audiences. And I guess that it's have that it's been received positively, I suppose. It's been uh, it's been lovely to 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 see that. 
Yeah, and I know that so many people are looking forward to seeing it, and I was so lucky to see it last week. And um, so I thought we might just go back to the beginning a little bit because sure. I'm always really curious whenever I'm talking to filmmakers or actors mm. or artists, like where the project began for them. So maybe you can tell us if you can remember because it is a while ago. Sure. Yeah. Like, where did Erocht first present itself to you? Was it like a conversation with Tom? Was it a script? Yeah, I can indeed. I was in Buffalo, New York, upstate New York, and uh, I had actually kind of taken some time off uh, acting in the industry and everything. I was up there. Um, I was online and a script came in from Tom saying that uh, he had written this and he was applying for funding. And, and if he would mind if he um, if I'd be if I if I'd be, you know, be a part of it, I guess. And uh, I I I before even reading it because it was Thomas said absolutely but I read the script and I remember reading the script and having a very kind of visceral feeling of uh, I suppose connection and uh, realizing that I was reading a story that had had I been born kind of 170 odd years ago that this could well be you know um, my own story you know or, or, or a story like it and so because it was so close to home and because it resonated so much, I was, uh, yeah, I was kind of hooked and I was really chuffed that Tom um, had sent it to me and and kind of uh, asked me to be a part of it because I'd worked with Tom on a short, maybe four or five years prior to that and with Kate McCullough or, or the cinematographer, the amazing cinematographer. And um, that, that was a really uh, positive experience, that short. And... Tom is the kind of filmmaker who, I suppose as an actor, he's kind of a, a really, uh, an actress director because of his own acting experience. Um, his insight is, is fantastic, you know? So um, I think all of his stories have, uh, they're very kind of honest and they're very human stories and they always have heart. I always feel like anything Tom's made, uh, it'll, it'll move you, you know? And and uh, so he was, you know, I, I was just really chuffed and um, really kind of honored, truthfully, that he he had entrusted me to 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 tell Coleman's story. Yeah, because it's it's amazing that you were talking about Kate's work there and um, Kate McCullough, the cinematographer, because it's so beautifully shot and it is quite um quite a, a strange feeling to kind of be looking at such a harrowing story so beautifully made like the landscape is, is is just stunning and obviously you're a Connemara man yourself and you shot around that area and um, so you were kind of coming back from America to shoot this film in your homeland um, and like you said like a characters that would have been there only a couple of generations before so yeah. did that kind of the, the the fact that you were surrounded by this amazing landscape that you were kind of very much shooting in nature and then also in a place that you've grown up in did that all kind of help to get you oh, absolutely yeah absolutely and and just on um Kate's kind of aesthetic I guess I, I think we you know because I was brought in early like it was a really rare um opportunity as an actor because usually you know as you know if you're not really involved in many conversations prior to you know the first day on set it can often be the case you know but I had kind of I, I was in you know I was kind of eavesdropping to to chats Kate and Tom had about the look, the feel. And I think one of the big things was trying to 
um, to capture the beauty, but not in a, in a pretty way, you know, and I, and I think that is evident in the film, and I think that really informs the film, and the landscape is a massive character in, in the film. Um, the granite, the gully, the cave, um, it's, it, it really kind of does so much of the work and did so much of the work for us, you know, so, so to shoot in that environment and for that, you know, to shoot so close to home, um, Askaelge, you know, speaking Irish was, was really, yeah, it was, was a, a powerful experience, you know, yeah, it'll stay, yes. yeah, really, really was. I'm sure. And it, and it shows, and it, it is interesting that, you know, the landscape and you and kind of your, your figure, your physique is like, there are these juxtaposition kind of, you know, two things going on. And so I guess, I guess we should talk about your prep for the the role because, you know, as actors, you know, as any kind of artist, there is always a certain level of preparation for any film, any project, but obviously playing somebody who is living in a famine is going to be another level of prep altogether. I mean, were you, were you daunted by the idea that that was going to be a part of saying yes to this role? And, and can you maybe talk a little bit about what you had to go through? I, I, yeah, I guess it was a little daunting uh, because I guess as an Irish person, you know, uh, making or being a part of a film with the famine, you're just very conscious of not, not kind of fucking it up, you know what I mean, <laughs> and doing it justice. And I guess um, there's a level of responsibility that comes with that type of storytelling. And we were all very aware of that. And I certainly was aware of that um, while I was kind of approaching the role and prepping for it. And, uh, you know, ultimately, because we only we had I think the budget was about one point two million, which sounds like a lot of money. But on a film like that's that's kind of that's not a whole lot. And uh, for the scale of the, the kind of the story we were telling and what that meant was we didn't have money for like lots of starving people or starving villages or you know most of the famine was really seen through Coleman's body and um and so once yeah once 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 we got on board like it was just very uh practical I guess and also you know the the pride pride can be a great friend sometimes as well you know that you just you just want to do give it your best and so uh fear and pride I'd say Cleaver were a big part of this and uh, and then just you know working with the very good nutritionist and uh, and you know um, making making some dietary changes. And and uh, did you did you kind of have to? Was there a long lead time in that? Because uh, you know, and don't yeah. feel yeah four months, four months. yeah yeah. So time. it was like it was it was long enough yeah um long enough and yeah just enough time as well kind of so. And then you're shooting in Ireland in the winter outside in a boat for most of that. So that's kind of, yeah, the heat was a, was a challenge. (laughs) Yeah. There was heat and then in the ocean and kind of coming in and out of the sea. And there was, there was, um, there was some, you know, some, some days were tougher than others, but I have to give credit to, to Sasha and Ikhine, the the girl, the actor who plays the, the little girl in the film, um, because she, she really, uh, we shot kind of most of the, the famine stuff first if that makes sense and then we shot the beginning of the film at the end of the shoot and at the beginning of the shoot when I was kind of at my lightest weight wise I was really kind of um uh struggling physically you know um to to to, to stay awake and to you know to 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 make any sense of things and uh 
she was so incredible, like such a diligent professional, uh, and she's outstanding in the film. She really is, um, as are as are all of the cast, you know. So like, uh, she really is, yeah, uh, yeah. Like it was just, um, yeah, it was really, really a gift to work with with someone of her talent, you know. That's amazing, and she, you know, you guys do have such a great connection and bond in the film um and like you said it must have been difficult when you your 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 mind was kind of elsewhere with the what you had to do physically to kind of keep the role but you know was it did you have much time to kind of you know get to know you know her or was it just like thrown in the deep end and you guys in fairly deep yeah I did I did read when we were uh, when we were doing kind of callback auditions for her character I did sit in on one of those so I had read with her and the you know we had I did know her a little bit beforehand uh, but then there was quite a break between that time and shooting so she was you know we were kind of thrown in there but like yeah um uh, we definitely uh you know we we certainly built a, a relationship like a strong relationship during the the shoot you know uh, so I mean there are so many like every every character every actor in this is so perfectly cast and there is such a great ensemble with them yeah. because Big I mean I guess you're talking about a community that all know each other very well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and all like you know from uh, Dara Devani, who's incredible as as Patsy, to to Michael McElhatton as the landlord, to you know Siobhan O'Kelly as uh, as 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 Coleman's neighbor. You know, um, like there's 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 uh, so many uh, that that really bring the character or the the world alive. You know um and yeah i mean i i think everyone everyone uh did such an amazing job at kind of filling their own story and filling their character story and filling their character's world you know so um yeah again i, I think you know as an actor you're just when you get a chance to work with actors of that caliber uh not just those i've named but everyone involved uh you know you just feel like it's it's a, it's a good day going into work, you know, it's just like, uh, you know, you get to, to work with, with, with these people. So. 100%. And like you said, I, I, I absolutely felt that when I watched it, the sense that, you know, some characters might only have a couple of minutes on screen, but they feel like they've been there for actually a lot longer. Um, and, and I guess that's, that's the, the atmosphere that Tom and you all built as an, as an ensemble going into those scenes. Um, a scene that I'm, I particularly want to kind of ask you about, well, it's, it's more of a scene that I, I noticed myself as an audience member um, feeling, you know, the sense of dread and um, foreboding that comes with watching any film like Aracht comes from the audience knowing the history, of course, and we know the outcome of, of what happened to a lot of these people. Specifically, I remember the scene with Michael McElhatton with the lieutenant, you know, and, and your character is feeling so much pressure um, from all angles. And you're just, you know, trying to explain what the ramifications of these kind of um, rent rises would be. And he's so flippant and just not listening. And, and, you know, you feel that as an audience member, you feel like screaming because we, of course, know the history. And, and I'm just curious, you know, when you approach something like this, was there diff was there ever a difficulty for you separating 
you know, Donald, the person who knows the modern man who knows the history and playing, you know, Coleman's story for the scenes where it was, you know, especially at the start of the film where they don't fully know what is happening and they don't know how bad it's going to get. Yeah, very much so, Cleva. Yeah, yeah. As in like at the start when I was prepping, I was reading so much, uh, everything I could about the famine uh, books, watching any documentaries available, um, uh, and trying to kind of consume as much as I could about that period and event uh, as possible, and then I was I was uh, I was doing a bit of work with uh, uh, a coach I work with uh, an acting coach, and I was kind of reminded that like you know Coleman doesn't know, <laughs> you know it sounds so simple and so basic, but sometimes you forget that like you know your character doesn't know the outcome, and because it's so ingrained of ingrained in terms of our um history and and you know if if, if you uh, grow up in ireland you are you know you're aware of the famine you know uh, to varying degrees and uh, definitely there was a moment of yeah hold on a second i need to kind of park all that for now and just try and try and um, live you know with with what's going on here and experience that without knowing or thinking about where where this goes yeah yeah it's it's really interesting and I'm so fascinated with people's process with stuff like that because you know playing anything a period drama anything that is set in in true historical times it comes with another level of kind of prep but then at the same time you have to play the characters for just knowing as much as they know in the moment yes yeah 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 Yeah. well it's gone on such a journey this film I mean it's so it premiered in the Talon Black Knights Film Festival in Estonia in 2019 and then it was nominated for it was Ireland's nomination for the best international feature film in the Oscars of 2020. 11 IFTA nominations one of which was your own for um, best actor nominations and then it was released in the cinema in 2021. So it, I feel like this is the epitome of like pandemic film because it was like made in pre-pandemic, released in the pandemic. And then you kind of have this now, this whole new new lease of life um, post-pandemic. Well, hopefully, can we call this period post-pandemic? Um, even though it's not, but, but we're coming out of it in terms of the cinemas being open. And I guess I'm just curious, like, how has it been to eventually be able to go to the cinema and watch this on a big screen, like enjoy it with your family, get people who know you to go to the cinema and, and yeah, how have you been enjoying watching it again? Yeah, I, I, it's been like, yeah, it's um, like, honestly, it's been, it's been such a, it's kind of, yeah. How, how can I put this? Um, it came out, so I'm working on something now and I'm I'm shooting in the west of Ireland again, but I had a few days off for the, I had a screening in, in Galway and in Dublin and I was able to sit in uh, in Dublin. Uh, Tom and I actually decided to sit in and watch it with, with the audience at the IFI and watching it three years later um, was really special. And uh, just because I guess the, the film has had such a journey, you know, uh, much undulation with pandemic and it, you know, playing at Dublin and then the cinema's closing and the cinema's opening, but to have an audience be able to watch it now and, and at London for, you know, for it to have, for it to have its screening there, um, you can't but help uh, kind of uh, feel like uh, kind of a sense of uh, some kind of achievement and happiness that it's just out there, you know, um, because films like Arup, I think belong in, in cinemas and that's, that's where um, 
you know, I think that's where you'll get most from watching it. You know, I think it's a big screen film because of the cinematography and because of its fe- the, the, the feel of the film. Um, we're just really thrilled, like really, really thrilled that it's finally made its way out and that we are as a society, I guess, in a place where we can go to the cinema again. Yes, it's, it's brilliant. It's so important. Yeah. Well, it, it's a it's such a beautiful film and you give such a considered and such a heartbreaking performance. So I know everyone's going to be really excited to see it in the festival. Um, so thank you so much, Donald, for chatting to me. Thank you so much, Kiva. Thank you so much. So am I. I mean, it's very strange. Uh, this uh, just to have it here. Uh, there was something about it. It was really weird. Um, I've obviously seen it lots of times, but it was very special. Um, just this viewing, and I'm aware that it's kind of near the end of its, you know, its mm-hmm. run in terms of cinemas, and um, so it was a real honour to have it here. Um, and we have an eleven-month-old baby, and in a really weird way, because this movie was made three years ago, mm. he is the spit of that kid, <laughs> and I kill him twenty minutes into yeah, the film. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I mean, it's quite—it was quite upsetting for me to see him. It's, it was, so yeah, for many reasons, it's been—it was emotional. Um, so I want, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, about your journey towards making art and your journey as a filmmaker um, before we talk about the film itself. Um, so I suppose let's start at the beginning um, in terms of your, this is your debut feature film. I want to talk about your route of getting into film because um, you come from a, an acting background originally, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I was, I was an actor, I'm an actor since I was about 25. Um, I started, um, I, I did a geology degree and my parents were delighted when I came home and told them I wanted to be an actor after, <laughs> after all, they were thrilled. <laughs> um, and that, I had, a, I had a really, you know, a, a good time as an actor and I really enjoyed it. And I think I was talking to you about this, yeah. Jerry, um, um, earlier, that I just found, I began to, um, I began to engage a lot more with scripts uh, later on in my acting um, career, and I I found myself um, just kind of being way more um, as as I as I kind of as I got older, I found myself um, obsessing much more with 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 script and 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 at the time it came out a lot as frustration, you know, and I think that wasn't great for maybe. As an actor, you know, if you're, you know, sometimes as an actor, you have to turn up and make the best of what you've got yeah, because, yeah. you know, the production doesn't allow for changes. But I seem to pull against it a lot. And I, I think that, that caused me a lot of, I think, anguish as, a, as an actor and, and also my co workers as well. And so I think towards the end of my career as an actor, I wasn't exactly fun to be around. Um, and then I started to write, and I realized that that was the problem, that I was actually a writer, not an actor, and that the writer, I was just trying to express myself as a writer. And um, Do you think that frustration as an actor was, like, 
your critical mind or your uh, your creativity. Yeah, and it wasn't even like that the work was that bad or anything that I was criticizing. I think I just had a need to express myself mm -hmm. in that way, and it's only like in retrospect that it makes sense to me now, you know. So I apologize to all the productions that I bitched and moaned about the, the lines of dialogue that I had to say and stuff. Um, it wasn't their fault, it was my fault. Really. And where did you go from there? What was your um, what was your journey from there towards your day? Um, my, I, I, I did a radio play um, back in uh, 2010, um, about three three lads on a corrupt go back in time and it's, it's very strange it's a very strange little radio play it was as great as well um so um that was yeah that was a bit of an eye-opener for me uh working with actors uh, and and directing them i just i, I it was it, it was a, it was a real uh, epiphany for me and i realized that that was where i should be you know helping actors as opposed to being one you know yeah yeah, yeah. And then what? Your first film beyond that? I did a little uh, a short called Arrow, or sorry, called <laughs> called Asshole, similar, um, about a, a kid who saves a donkey, and it's set very, very, very close to there, mm. um, and it's contemporary. It's about a little kid who um, saves a donkey that's being abused, um, and takes him off to a little island, and uh, it's a cute little story. Lovely, lovely. So moving on to Arrow then. Um, when we spoke earlier, you said that. The, the process of getting it from script to screen, you know, pandemic aside and everything, um, was a relatively quick one. Yeah, it was, it was, I, obviously, I, like, I'd made a lot of shorts, and I had a real, um, I wanted to make something big, you know, obviously, I wanted to make a, a feature, because that was the next step, and this scheme came up, and it was launched at Cindy Cahar by Alan Esselman and T.G. Cahar. Um, and I just saw it as a fantastic opportunity, so I approached Pua McNeil, um, who's been on this journey with me, he's here tonight, um, um, and I remember, well, I went into his office and, and I was like, you know, we should go for this, and he was like, yeah, yeah, what have you got? So I started, I pitched these ideas to him, and two of them were really well established, and the third one was not well established at all, and it was basically, I just said, okay, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and then I said, well, okay, so I have this one, there's a guy, and he's on a boat, and he's been banished from his land, and he's, 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 he's fishing, and he's looking in on the land, and, and, and for some reason, he, he, he's not allowed to go home, and he's living on this island, this feral existence, and I said, I don't know when it is, and I don't know where it is, and I don't know what, what it is or what it's about. And I said, so there you go. And he said, yeah, that's what we should, that's what we should do. And so that was the beginning of Arrow. And that's all I had, you know. Um, and so, as, I, as I've said, like, I never set out, we never set out to make a, a film about the famine. Um, the famine just came into the film um, and walked into it because of where it was set. I think, I mean, I have an affinity for Connemara and my, my partner 20 years is from there. And uh, I went to an Irish language school as a kid that was set up by teachers from Connemara. They used to bring us out there when I was a child. So I've used it a lot as a, as a muse. And um, yeah, yeah. I think the, 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 the famine is everywhere on the coastline of, of, of the west of Ireland, and particularly that area. I mean, the, the abandoned ridges in the fields and the, just the cragginess of the landscape just evokes, uh, evokes it. And um, I think the ghosts, just started to walk into it and um so 
Yeah, if I'd have set out to make a film about the famine, I honestly don't think I would have had the fall to, to, to carry it through because it's such hollow ground. But. Yeah, it's a heavy subject matter. Mm. But I think the way that you've the way that you've approached it in our act, it's um it's not a famine story necessarily. It's not a story that is centered around the famine. It feels like a story that just happens to be during the famine. It's about many more things on top of that. You're not yeah. you're not really dealing with the enormity of it head on in that sense. No, I mean, uh, well, I suppose what we tried to do as well is it was budgetarily. I mean, we were all aware that we weren't going to have poor houses or famine ships or crowds of people starving. And um, you know, the movie um, Black Forty Seven had come out just around the time I was writing. Um, and um, they had a much bigger budget than us. And I think, you know, they even struggled with it. I mean, I've, I've, I've spoken to Lance about it, the director of Black 47. Um, and I, I, yeah, we, we all owe, owe a huge debt to him as well because Arup became a film, it is through kind of, that he, had, he, 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 he set out and did something completely different. Yeah. And it sent me on a different trajectory because I knew I had to tell a, a personal story that I couldn't, um, I couldn't show what needed to be shown. I mean, I would have ne- needed, I've needed millions and millions of euro to do, to do justice. Mm-hmm. So I knew it had to be through Coleman and it, needed, it had to be through one man. And that was the challenge that, that I, I laid on in front of um, poor old Don Lohaley, <laughs> who you see, uh, who did such an incredible job. Um, because I said to him, you know, listen, Donald, we don't have the money to show the family. We're going to have to show it through you. And, 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 and are you up for that? And he thought about it for a couple of weeks. He kind of made me a bit nervous because I thought he'd jump at it. Um, but he was like, hang on a minute. I'm not sure I'm going to have to think about this. And he, in fairness to him, he, he took it so seriously. You know, he knew the challenge that, that was ahead of him. And uh, you can see the results, and you know it's it's down to him really that the film is as impactful as it as it is. I mean, it's a massive credit to him as a performer and a person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is he someone that you've worked with before? Yeah, we did. We shot a short together. Uh, he played the lead in a short um, that I made. It was about a kid who had um, killed his girl. He was a boy racer, and he he'd been imprisoned, and he when he get. It's the, the, the short begins, he gets out of prison and he's dealing with the fallout. So another cheery, cheery story. <laughs> um, me and Donald like to make comedies um, now. Uh, I mentioned the comedy. Um, but um, yeah, and Kate McCullough actually was yeah. one of her first dramas that she shot was the short. So me, Donald and Kate, uh, we, we had all worked together before. Um, so yeah. It's important that, isn't it? Like the, just to have a, and a Mary Cronish, who, who edited this film, edited that short as well so oh, right. so there's pedigree there then yeah so yeah it's kind of we got the gang back together you know yeah yeah good yeah. stuff good stuff um very shortly i'll um, open up uh, questions to the floor um if and if you do have a question please raise your hand there will be a roaming mic which will come around um in advance i just want to say uh, because there's lots of people here um, if we do select you to ask a question um please wait until the mic reaches you otherwise
right, okay. Um, <laughs> he, he was really, really thin. Was it like a kind of, like, um, did he lose a lot of weight for it? Is he exactly that way? No, he's not, no. He was actually really fat. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, um, he was a big guy, you know, Donald, um, I was slagging him off when I was, when I handed him the script, you know, and, and we were laughing because he was saying, you know, I, I was, we, he was sending me photos of himself as, as the thing was happening. He was living in New York and, um, yeah, the comparison photographs are quite stark. So he, he lost about, I think he was six, like 15, 15 and a half stone. He got down to 10 and a half in four months. I think he got under 10 actually. And, yeah, everybody asked that. Uh, he went vegan first. He went vegan for the first month. He said that that dropped a lot. Um, and uh, he did it in New York as well, which is tough because New York is, you know, food is good in New York. And um, and he came home then. But he had a nutritionist. We we had him. He was looked after, uh, particularly towards the end, because he went on a water diet on the last for the last week. He, like he really he really went there. And he got to a point as well that, like, I don't know if anybody has heard about this before, but when you go on this kind of extreme thing, it becomes addictive in a way, yeah. almost. Yeah. And he started to kind of, like, he would say to me, you know, I, I can go more, like, I can, I can really go down to nothing. And I was like, I was like, he has to be able to roll the boat, Donald, like, you know what I mean? He needs to be able to do stuff as well, like, he can't, you know, if he's too skinny, you're like, nobody's going to believe you're, you're able to roll through the sea and... So uh, that stopped him in his tracks a little bit. Said, "No, no, you know, you're good now. This is good, so we can go with this." But it is quite incredible. And when I see, it was scary because I lived with him when we were shooting, and he'd come out of the shower, and honestly, the guilt I felt, and if, and I got an, an, a fright, yeah, yeah. like you know, even an awful fright, because you feel, Jesus, this guy has really put himself out there for us. And and the first week of the shoot was. We were caught. We called the all the the famine stuff because he was at his skinniest. Yeah, and um, like all that water stuff. I mean, it was October. We shot at this time. It was three years ago. It's time of year, and he had been he had been spending time in the water, acclimatizing because we had no budget to to uh, to for a tank or any of those. So all that underwater stuff is in the sea. Like it's there in that gully. We got an underwater cameraman to get into the water with him that day. And we shot all that stuff. And we had a paramedic on set, and his body temperature was a big issue because he had no um, insulation anymore. Yeah, yeah. So we had to really watch him, and um, it's a miracle we got what we got, really, you know. The gods were with us. So we're relieved to hear you budget for a paramedic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. Um, well, I just put a white coat on it. <laughs> I do want to explore the aspect of shooting in, in that landscape a bit more because that's like it's such an incredible part of what we see in the film, and it's such a inhospitable place in general. Like it must have been much more difficult to get what you got in that space as a result. Yeah, I don't know. I mean. I was protected from all that a lot, I, I think, you know, um, it, with credit to the team and the producer. And um, I don't remember it being difficult at all, you know, and I know it was like, I know everybody was pulling their hair out and freaking out, but I wasn't. Um, because I suppose I was just so buzzed about being there and being able to do this. And that's the proper, the right way, you know. Yeah. Um, but um, so I didn't find it difficult. I was just so obsessed at the time with it. It, it, it was, it was, um, 
it was incredible. It was an incredible time of my life. Um, um, but it was tough. Like there was four storms that name blew through the blew tr uh, through the coast for those twenty. It was we had twenty days, four weeks. So it was really hard, but we seemed to be lucky, you know, we seemed to catch a break. Mm. The days that we shot on the sea were calm, uh, we were able to get indoors. The, ca the cave, I'm going to destroy all your, um, the cave was actually uh, was on a basketball court in, a, in, in an industrial estate in the middle of Carrow. Row. <laughs> 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 yeah, so that cave isn't real. Um, I mean, obviously where it is is real, but the interior of the cave was weather cover because most of the film is outside. So we needed, when you're shooting a film, you need what's called weather cover. Your interiors are usually weather cover. When the weather's really bad, you go in. And when it's nice, you go out. So thankfully we had the cave. Uh, so when those big storms blew through, we, we, were, we, we were able to go into the cave, you know. Good stuff, good stuff. So we were lucky. We were lucky. And we were lucky with Sasha. Yes. I want to mention Sasha. I mean, if we didn't have Sasha Quinn, who played Kitty, we wouldn't have shot this, we wouldn't have got what we got because Sasha was able to, um, just miraculously, you know, I mean, I had to find someone who could speak Irish and not just a kid who could speak Irish, but somebody who could speak the type of Irish mm -hmm. that, that, it, that, that the rest of them are talking, which is, which is Kaintor Ohuchus, which is Gwega uh, Obalia, which is, um, Irish taught at home, um, and Sasha. So I, I, I didn't have a huge choice. She had to be from Connemara. Uh, so we went and looked at all the schools during the, just before the summer, and we found her. And coincidentally, it turns out that Sasha is Bob Quinn's granddaughter, the filmmaker. And that was a complete fluke. Bob Quinn, look him up uh, if you don't know who he is. Um, incredible filmmaker um, and a, a rebel and a a real character, but he, he um, it's, it's his granddaughter, Sasha, who, who, who plays Kitty. But Sasha was able to turn up on set. I remember the first day on set, because with kids, I've worked with kids lots, and it's very prohibitive time-wise. You only have a very little amount of time with them on yeah. set, because there's, they can only work for 40 minutes, and they have to break for an hour, and, and you have to use doubles, and there's all this kind of... But Sasha would arrive on set, and I'd say, okay, we're doing this scene now, and this is like, we're not going to get this in 40 minutes, like, but Sasha would turn up and nail, just nail it in wow. three takes, you know? And if Sarah was her first time, and if it wasn't, that was just another one of the elements that just fell into place for us, because we were so lucky with Sasha, because the stuff that should have taken way longer didn't, because Sasha just was on it. And fantastic with Donald, because Donald in the first week was very, he was wasted, like he was in this yeah. kind of place, because he was starving, and um, she really looked after him, you know? Yeah, there's yeah. real chemistry between them. Like, there's not many shots where the two of them are in, um, you know, in close contact with each other, but there's such a, there's such a communication between them. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah, it was, a, it was amazing, and, and, and originally that I had imagined the character of her to be helpless and weak, and that it was somebody that would demand it that he that he would he would look after her and that was his road out of mm. road back to life if, yeah, in a way yeah, yeah. but when we cast Sasha it, you know we realized very quickly that Sasha was never going to be a meek weak child that she was a feisty tough kid so I had to change my idea of how she changed the way I saw the character 
and instead of him being brought back to life or being dragged back into humanity um, through her helplessness, she kicks and punches him back to humanity, uh, which I think is much stronger, and that's a credit yeah. to her. Um, do we have any other questions from the audience? Uh, one right back there, Jennifer. Reduce uh, scandal in Cade Scott for the young. For August, um, yeah, uh, Journey of the Margaret. Um, yeah, what I was going to ask is, I was puzzled why you were saying that you thought you needed a big budget to deal with the famine, because that's the first film that I watched, certainly where I, seeing the struggle in the native tongue, which has already been spoken, and then the bilingualism in the scenes where they go to the landlord, was something that brought home to me the personal trauma of the, the famine more than any other film that I've seen. What do you think it needs to be a big budget film? Sure, that's the way to do it. No, I didn't. I did. I don't think. I don't think we. I think that film that you watched tonight didn't need a big budget. But if I was to, if I was to do it on a, if I was to try and show the famine in in on on a more, in a, in a in a kind of a more a wider picture, um. Yeah, you would need more money because you know you you know if you were trying to depict crowds or so. From the very beginning, I knew that the budget was small, uh, but it the, the the small budget actually um, create it, it actually helped to create what what because it forced me as a writer to internalize everything. Um, so, I mean, I think um, it's uh, like I I teach film and. Um, in Dublin, and it's one thing, it's one thing that I've learned from being a filmmaker is that the obstacles are always, always, not sometimes, but always, what end up being what you like the most about your film. Um, the sequence in the middle of the film, for instance, when he's on his own in the gully, that's my favorite part of the film, and that was born out of pure necessity because there was stuff we couldn't capture. There was there were there was stuff about his family that we weren't able to get because on the at the time we just didn't have the errors and we didn't have whatever and I was rewriting as we shot. So in the edit we all got we all crunched our heads together, the the, the, the producer, the editor, me, the music, and we, we said, right, we have to create his past. We have to create what's happened in the last two years with just what we have. So like they say you write it you write a film three times once once on page, once on set, and then once in the edit. So that sequence was conceived in the edit. Um, and it's my favorite part of the film because it's what I, I didn't have. And we, we managed to, through hard work and keeping going and not letting go and pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, I'm most proud of that stuff. And uh, so yeah, I think you're right. I mean, the film is, I think the film works because of its flinty, unfinished uh, I, and, and it's taught me how to make films in the future you know i think completion can be a bad thing i think the i think the teetering on collapses is what great films i think that's where real art is because i think as an audience as well we enjoy that more because it allows us to 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 to, to lean forward and to, to to search as opposed to sitting back and having everything just handed to us you know so I think it's a great film because of that, and I think, yeah. um, yeah, that's because we had so many challenges. Yeah, I think the stuff in the gully or the island is the most cinematic part of the film in that sense because it's like a, 
uh, less is more. Yeah. That's that, like, you know, you're, you're telling the story with what you don't see. But the sound is huge in it. Like, the sound is a massive part of the film. And, and like, the guy who did the sound design, it's, it's only his second feature, Brendan. And I think him and Keela, what they were doing kind of came together as well during the edits. And, and it, you know, when I listen to it now, it's just so... He did such a wonderful job. Like, just... just like the, You can feel and hear... You can feel it through the sound. You know, this... Definitely. You know, this, 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 this kind of... Um, I was even listening to tonight in the when Patsy's down in the kitchen even and there's these sounds coming through of like the belly of a beast almost like you're inside uh, something and you know there's, there's this sinister sound design that's going on all the way through that's just in, that's just a really it's a credit to the team we had you know it really is um, so we were lucky you know we were lucky we do it again though we'll do it again <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm talking to too much these people. Well, you're here to talk, so. That was, uh, that was incredible film, thank you very much. Thank you. And, and one of those direct tellings of the drama of uh, the family. I've never seen it before. You, you've spoken about a lot of elements uh, in it, but one of the big ones, which that you take for granted, but I think you should, is the language itself. Uh, that blends with all this authenticity. Uh, can you tell us about that, a little bit more about that, and why you chose to make it in Welsh? Um, yeah, you couldn't make this film in any other language. I don't think, I mean, it's um, given where it is. Um, I couldn't imagine it any other way. So it was always conceived in Irish. It was, that's, that was the, begin the beginning. It, the Irish kind of came first. But I think what's, what's, I think what's, um, what I'm very proud of is that um, the language is, the language in a weird way is not, is not as important. It's not about the language. The language is part of the film, if you know what I mean. As I, with, with, particularly with Irish audiences, like to immerse yourself in this in this film, and it's something that people have come back time and time and said to me that, you know, look, there's problems with the Irish language in Ireland, as in people who don't speak it have a hang up about it because of how it was taught and it was forced down people's throats. And there's all sorts of shit going on with the Irish language in Ireland. Um, Everybody wants to speak it. Everybody loves it, but 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 there's there's a block, and I think a film like Arab, because it's almost more like a foreign language film. Irish people have really rejoiced in watching it because it's not like the language is is a thing in the film. It the language is the film in a way, and 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 I think it allows people to enjoy the language, almost in a in, in an osmo more like osmosis as opposed to a this is an Irish language film this just is a film that happens to be an Irish um, and I think that comes from the authenticity of how it sounds and that we stuck to our guns and used people from the same part of Connemara it just sounds real and, I, and even if you're from a different part of the world I think you can sense that authenticity from it you can tell that it's that this is how those people spoke it's almost like a documentary style in that way. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of people would say to you, well, it doesn't matter where they're from, no one's going to know. Johnny in Poland won't care where, if it's Donegal Irish or Connemara Irish, but I think that stuff really matters, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's why the film works. And that's why the language in it just seems natural. And in a weird way, for me, when I'm watching it, 
I forget it's a film in Irish, and I only, I only realise it is when they're in the landlord's house, and I hear them all speaking English, and I suddenly go, and what was lovely about when we were shooting that scene was that suddenly they all sounded clunky when they were speaking, which I thought was lovely. Um, the actors, the Irish, the, the Connemara actors, when they start speaking English, it was like, they sound like they're speaking, what they were saying just kind of didn't sound as flowy or as, as uh, uh, you know, it was kind of, it was a really lovely moment. And when I watched the film and they switched to Irish, it always gets me. I always go, oh yeah, yeah, this is an Irish. Uh, I always forget. And I think that's, um, that's because the guys are, you know, it's the authenticity of yeah, how they speak. Yeah. Do you think we're seeing, well, I think we are seeing more films made in the Irish language? Yeah, does it? Yeah, does it? But it's because of the support that's been given through the scheme that we made this film through, and one of the reasons, um, there's a, the support being given, and it's a really, really a positive thing. And there's, there's, there's yeah. already been a few films attached to this scheme. There's some very strong films that are coming your way that yeah, yeah. that have that aren't out yet. But does it? There's going to be a slew of Irish language films, at really strong content coming out of this scheme, sure. um, over the next couple of years. So I think the scheme is, is definitely like the facilitating aspect of it. But films like Arakt, like Arakt has been very widely accepted by Irish audiences. I mean, it's done really well at the Irish box office. Well, I hope you do. But yeah. it's, it's done well at the Irish box office. Um, Donal is the lead in a film called Fosca. Yeah. Shelter. Which, um, well, two years in a row now, he's, um, he's in the lead film of uh, the one that's been selected by Ireland for the um, Oscar foreign language category. Yeah. So he's probably going places now. But um, um, we saw that at Galway uh, at the film slot earlier this year. Another wonderful film set in Connemara, shot in Connemara Jail. Um, and the critical, the, the audience reception to it was, was very, it was very warm. Mm. It was incredible. And it felt like, to me, it feels like uh, filmmaking at Scalica is taking more risks with its narrative form because people because audiences are more used to seeing stories which travel outside of Connemara or of or of Gwiltop. Yeah, I, I have an opinion about I, I would have an opinion about um there's this talk about, you know, films being more international and you hear this kind of bandied about and I think I basically think that's bullshit because I think if you if you are authentic in what you do, you can tell a story that's set in a very small place that nobody has ever heard of. But if, if, if the performances are authentic, if the dialogue is authentic, if the emotions between the characters are authentic, that's an international film. Because every we're all the same all over the world. And I think if you're truthful to small stories, they're big stories. Um, so I think the problem with a lot of filmmaking is that we try as a small country maybe to 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 be international as in we try and be more american you see these gangster tv shows coming out of ireland that are trying to be american gang you know it's just for me it's like it's a yawn fest for me you know um because i think when we read and that's why the irish language is such a cultural mind that hasn't been really i think when if it's because what the language does is it forces filmmakers to look at us and look in inward and i think the authenticity of that is is where the the strong film work is coming from it's like any great filmmakers they begin telling stories about where they're from like scorsese with new york and you know if you look at those films they're small but they're about small little places 
they're not trying to be international. They're not trying to look over there, over the field into you know what what would what would these people like us to do. Mm. They're just telling their own stories, and that's international as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, yeah, I feel quite strongly about that, and Arab could prove of that because you know people that have watched this all over the world and they get something from it. You yeah. Know? Brilliant. Any more questions? Congratulations on the film. Um, also on casting, Cairo's greatest export, Siobhan O'Kelly. On the casting, um, did you have a cast in mind when you were writing it? I know you spoke, you've worked with Donald before. And also, um, I have people in Birmingham where I'm from who are desperate to see this film. Is it is it going to get a, a UK release as well? Well, the Irish distributor is here, and, and so is the producer, so you can chat to them afterwards. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so hopefully, I mean, Arrow seems to be um, in a, in, a, in a great way. It's um, it seems to be it's staying alive, you know, um, against all odds. I mean, it, it it seems to be, you know, picking up its own kind of slow momentum, and I think. You know, what's wonderful about the film is that, you know, a lot of films just disappear and nobody ever sees them. And I, I really feel that Arif is a film that will be seen. There's a lovely thing happening at the moment with schools in Ireland that teachers are bringing their class, they're bringing slips, like the thousands of kids, you know, going to uh, out on a school tour to see Arif. And it's these, like, really lovely. That, for me, is massive. Um, now, in terms of the casting, um, yeah, I didn't. Well, obviously, Donald was the lead, and I just think I'm incredibly fortunate with Donald and and Dara Devani because Dara Devani plays Patsy. I think is one of the one of Ireland's greatest actors. Um, I mean, just as a filmmaker, uh, every everything Dara does, you can use like every take. He's just he's he's an incredible talent, and to have two guys. Who are so talented, like their performances are world class in this film. They're like I don't care what anybody says, they are world class performances. Um, and to have those two guys who are from twenty miles from one another, yeah, who were yeah. brought up speaking the Irish language and who happen to be the right age, happen to look fantastic and yeah, yeah, yeah. are amazing talented actors. Um, you know I don't think that's going to happen again anytime soon. <laughs> so I think I was very lucky. Um, but yeah, the cast was, yeah, casting was great. We had Louise Coyle to help us. Louise, great casting director. Um, so yeah, casting is key, as everybody knows. Brilliant. Um, we have a couple of questions down the front and this, this uh, person in front. Hi, hello. Oh, um, yeah, sorry. Fellow is a fantastic film, very inspiring. Thank you. I wanted to ask about the writing process. It seems like you had a lot of freedom. How long did it take, and how much, you know, how much rewriting did you do? And um, also, was there consciously or even unconsciously you discovered after the fact films or, or filmmakers that had a big influence on you? Yeah. So I mean, um, the um, the road was a big influence. I'll start with the end of your question first. Cormac McCarthy's The Road was a big influence on me, um, and There Will Be Blood. Uh, P.T. Anderson's oh, film. Yeah. Oh well, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, so, so those those were two films. Um, and filmmakers that I'm, I'm I'm heavily influenced. Um, by, um, the writing process. Um, was quick, and it was my first feature. 
uh, and it was a gun to the head kind of thing. So um, I just kind of, I, I wrote the vomit script, which is what uh, we affectionately call the first draft, uh, which is shit. And that was written pretty quick. Um, and then um, we got a, we got a, we, we arrived at a pretty good draft, I think, in about three months. Um, wow. And I had, That's rough. I bounced off Kuhn a lot, the producer. Um, yeah, we, 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 we lashed it out pretty fast. And then, and then it, so it goes into a process with, with, with Screen Ireland that they are with um, the Cine Carra thing. So they pick five from treatment. And then they um, they give uh, development money for the five, and then they pick two who are greenlit with budgets of 1.2 million each, and that's the cap on the budget. That's all you get, um, which means that things can go fast because if the budget is any more, or if they open the door to any more money, or as in you go up, producers trying to go off and get more money, it just delays everything. And their thing is, we want to make two movies every year, and if we cap the budget at 1.2 million, and nobody else can, that's what these films are. It speeds it up. Uh, it makes it uh, faster. So it happened pretty quick. But then, because I, I so we were greenlit. But then I went off and got Marco Halloran involved from, who wrote Adam and Paul and Rialto and so I, uh, uh, Mark came on and was script editor for me, and he was great. Just to he was actually really encouraging. I'm a massive fan of his, and as a writer and also first time um, feature writer. Um, you were very insecure, you know, and very, I, I kind of didn't know what I was doing and I didn't know if I was doing it right. And then, and then when we got in, when we got near to the production stage, uh, um, I, I'd say I, I wrote another, I'd say I drafted another about 10 times. And then we started to be told like, you know, this is a 6 million euro film. You've got 1.2 million. So there's no horses, there's no people, there's no ding, there's no ding, there's no dong. So it was like a 120-page script that ended up a 70-page script. So it just got, all the fat was taken off it, and um, it went right down to the bear. And then I had Donald then living with me for a couple of weeks before we went to shoot, and we went through the dialogue a lot with him. And his father's a folklore uh, lecturer, so... There was a lot of kind of talking about the script. And then when I was on set, things were happening all the time. And it was like, you know that scene we're shooting tomorrow? We can't do that now. So you're going to have to incorporate that beat into the scene that you're doing with. Or, you know, so this was, it was a constant changing, flowing thing, which I found really fantastic, to be honest with you. I, the freedom of that I found wonderful. Because I think as an actor... Sometimes you get a chance to work with directors who are loose with dialogue and they let you just do what you want. And for me, that was the happiest time of all for me on set was because he would say, look, this, is, this dialogue is terrible. So, look, you know what you need to do. You guys need to have an argument about his wife. So can you just have an argument about his wife and just shoot that? And that, for me, was the freedom that I loved. So when I was on set shooting Arrow, I loved going home at night with Donald and going... I got to rewrite this scene and we got incorporated in here. And I see stuff on the screen all the time that I go, oh yeah, that was because I couldn't do that. And now it ended up being that. And so yeah, it was, yeah, that's the, and it seems to be how I like to work. And yeah. um, thankfully I've written another screenplay since then and, and it seems like it's something I, I seem to be able to do. So I'm kind of relieved of that. 
But you're always, as a writer, you always think you're never, you, you can't do it. I yeah. mean, that's constant. Like, constant. It's really weird. And so I suppose that's why it's such a buzz that when you do, when you do get through that barrier and realise, okay, it's okay, you know, you, you're actually not really terrible at this. I mean, yeah. that's kind of the, the writer's... Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, we have another question for you. Neil and on Sword of Readership in Ireland. Um, I wanted to ask about um, a lot of the, the sound design that you talked about and the imagery of you know, few animals gone on, you know, the sudden acts of violence. There, there's a real kind of horror thread going through this. I mean, do, you, do you see art as a horror film? And is that what you set out to make? Ooh, yeah. yeah, I am. Um, I do, yeah. I mean, I do. I think there's a, there's a gothic element to the film. Um, I mean, even with Kate, the, the DOP, we always, we tried to, even when we were shooting the landscape, the time of year was very important, like October, because what happens in Connemara is the colour gets kind of pulled out of the landscape around that time of year, and it becomes kind of red and browns, and so, I mean, we wanted to, we wanted to pick, we wanted to use as much as we could in terms of landscape and image and framing to kind of create a, a cold and kind of a, a fearful, um, and also with the soundscape, um, yeah, I was always pushing towards horror because I mean I think horror is is the best place really to to describe what happened to Ireland. Um, um, it's how I think we all remember. I, I suppose it's 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 I think the famine is in all of us, and and I think it is a it it is it, it, it is a, a it was a horrific time. Mm. It's a horrific memory, even a you know a third, fourth generational memory for us. So I think horror is it probably happened almost. Uh, it was just seemed the natural way to tell the story. Um, but I didn't look at horror tropes either. But weirdly enough, I I, I was listening to an interview with um, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson who, who made There Will Be Blood, and this I only listened to this last week. And they made the same comparison with his film that there will be blood is like a horror film, um, and it has the same kind of darkness. And so maybe, you know, maybe I I magpied the horror from there will be blood a little bit. I don't know, but yeah, I see what you mean. Um, the 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 word arrow was a word. I've said this before. Sometimes I sometimes as a writer I will pick something because I like it and it has no meaning and then the meaning will come after that and Arab is a perfect example of that. I love the word Arab and I, I used to hear it when I was a kid in school and it was a word that not many people knew and even in Connemara I would say Arab like my missus from Connemara and she didn't know what it meant like at the beginning she's like I've never heard that word and she speaks you know she's but she's brought up speaking Irish so it's it's a word that I've always loved I love the look at it look look of it and um and uh that's where, so, but the word monster, I think, it, it translates as monster, um, rough translation is monster. But, um, yeah, I always think there's many monsters in the film, um, from Coleman's arrogance um, at the beginning of the film to, and his, his, his assumption that he can save everybody by going up to the landlord um, to, you know, obviously the monster that comes across the land and, and destroys people's livelihoods and then the British involvement in the starvation of millions of people, the Brit sorry, not the British, but the British the British um aristocracy at the time and their foreign policy. 
um, the monstrous apathy of, of the landlords to the suffering. Um, so there's, there's many monsters in the film. So it actually, it, it's, a, it's a really good fit. And the horror thing is a really good observation, yeah. That's really interesting to hear about the, the etymology of the, of the word monster. Like, there's, there's so much in there. Um, do we have time for other questions? Uh, I'm going to take that as a yes. Um, one more. Uh, we've got one right down the front. Um, I'll be quick, I'll be quick. Everybody's like, no, here we're going. This fella never shuts up. <laughs> Miss the last bus home. Do you have last bus in town? So you mentioned at the beginning that you started with the idea of Manning Boat Banished in, in Ireland, and that was kind of where you started. Um, so I'm just interested to know how the character of Patsy came about and how it kind of evolved through the process to the present one. Yeah, so um, I am very interested in um, grey area with when it comes to bad guys. So what I try to do with the landlord is create a Brit, a, an English, uh, because in, in, in these films and stories, a lot of the time what you end up with is moustache twirling British, you know, evil people. Um, so what I wanted to do with, with my, my fascination with, with him is, you know, I wanted to show him as a person first, because I think we're all the same. And it, Given, given, given the right circumstances, we can all be monstrous and apathetic about other people's suffering. I mean, we're all doing it right now um, in the world. Um, so I don't think there are any bad guys. I think we become bad people because of certain situations or situations we're put in. So I, I'm fascinated by that as a storyteller. So with Pat, the Patsy character, um, I, I like the fact that the, the, most, the evilest person in the film is actually an Irish person. Um, also, the two guys who come up to get the money from them, they're both Irish. And some of the perpetrators of the worst horrors during the famine were Irish people. Um, and they did it to their own. Um, so um, so I was, I'm really interested in that grey area when it comes to uh, storytelling. Um, because I think the black and white, bad guy, good guy thing is, is boring. Right. So Patsy, um, Patsy is an ex, is a weird, Patsy's one of those guys there are freedom fighters and there's people who fight for causes and then there are just people who are damaged and they will use any cause they can to perpetrate violence or to 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 try and uh, usurp or to put themselves in a position of power patsy is one of those people patsy's a bad dog like bad things were done to him he was when he was small and he's the kind of dog that hangs around the yard and then suddenly he will just bite somebody so he, he's bad, um, he's damaged, and you know whatever situation you're going to put Patsy in, he will end up trying to empower himself through violence, and he does it, he does it uh, up in the landlord's house, because he's, he, he's, um, he's shamed by Coleman, when Coleman takes the gun off him and tells him and, and embarrasses him in front of these people, the guy he looks up to now is suddenly his enemy, he kills his brother, he also kills the landlord, and then... Then he goes hunting with the English, working with the English, and he, 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 he fought for the British Army as well. So he's one of these characters that just, some people struggle with Patsy's motivation. Um, I remember when we did test screenings, one of the big things was Patsy's motivation was an issue for people. They were like, what's motivating this guy, you know? And my answer to that is, 
whatever you've got, like, you know what I mean? Um, when it comes to, you know, what are you rebelling against? Whatever you've got, you know, that's Patsy. He's just one of those people. So that's, that's, um, yeah, so that's the answer to that question. And I think we should let everybody go. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.